And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Today's episode of The Audible is brought to you by Trader Joe's, a national chain of neighborhood grocery stores where you can run a naked bootleg to score delicious food at great prices. From mac and cheese balls to mini balls of meat, you'll always end up with a touchdown. Learn more at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. Welcome back to the Audible. I am Bruce Feldman, joined as always by Stuart Mandel. Stu, as we were talking, it's Sunday night while we're taping. I have yet to make it home from my game. My game was a early afternoon game. We had TCU and West Virginia, and because it was an earlier game, I had to leave my hotel room around 10:30 or 11 Central Time. So I missed College Game Day, and or I missed parts of College Game Day. And I came back, and I'm playing catch-up, and I'm trying to figure out this bizarre controversy-slash-subplot has unfolded involving Chris Peterson and ESPN. Please tell me what the hell is going on. (laughs) Well, you know, since I'm on Pacific time, I don't often catch very much of game day. But if I can get, you know, get not just myself, but my daughter and everybody going in time, uh, you know, I might catch a little bit of it before... The, the 9 a.m. Pacific game starts. So I just happened to turn it on right as they were talking about this topic of, you know, showing the soundbite of Chris Peterson, apologizing to his fans for all the late starts, and lamenting the, um, you know, the, f- the fact that people aren't going to be watching it on the East Coast. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, they're really going to talk about this on ESPN? You know, ESPN's a pretty, um, pretty involved party in this whole discussion. Not only do they talk about it, Kirk Herbstreit kind of went all in. He said that Chris Peterson should be thanking ESPN for actually having a relationship with the Pac-12, thanks to Larry Scott, uh, and that before there was a black hole when it came to the Pac-12. And now you can actually tune into the Pac-12 and see them if you live in the ACC or the SEC or the Big Ten. So I understand Peterson's point, but be careful. Would you rather be on at 3.30 on the Pac-12 network when nobody's watching? And then, that, so that was game day. Then during the game, the Cal-Washington game that night, they kind of didn't let up. They showed actually showed a graphic on the screen at one point about how much higher their ratings are late at night versus the afternoon. I don't know, coincidence? You tell me. They actually did a little bit at one point where they put out three cupcakes on the <laughs> sideline to signify Washington's non-conference schedule. Just seemed a little over the top for this one set of comments he made where he didn't even mention ESPN. Yeah, it's, you know what, though, just trying to kind of pull it apart a little bit, all this kind of going back and forth, I can see the rationale on both sides. I mean, the reality is you're going to get more eyeballs watching your games, you know, at that time than if the Pac-12 decided to jam their games in at 3.30 Eastern like a lot of other people because, 
you know, there's just more games. I mean, I've watched, you know, Hawaii games if it's the last thing on TV before you have to shut the TV because there's nothing else left. Mm-hmm. And I think that that Pac-12 after dark has somewhat of a niche. Now, I spoke to an old Pac-12 coach, and this is not Mike Leach, I'll preface it by saying that, but uh, we were kind of DMing back and forth, and this subject came up uh, earlier today, and this person said it's hard to play every week at that time. Uh, coaches are not wired that way. The Pac-12, because of that contract, basically sold out for cash. Of course, that is part of the job, but coaches just want to get up and play. And if you take away those late games, it really screw. If you if you're if you are away on those late games, it really screws up your next week, and it's tough to rebound when you get back at 5 a.m. Yeah, well, night games aren't easy for anybody, regardless of the conference, in terms of the road team having to travel back. I remember um, talking to James Franklin the day after they won at Iowa. They got back at about four four thirty in the morning from that trip, you know, from Central Time back to. Pennsylvania. You know, I think the thing that's lost in here, the the whole issue of exposure and people not being able to watch late on the East Coast is one thing. What people don't realize who don't live out here, and I didn't realize it until I moved out here, a lot of Pac-12 fans just don't like night games. And I mean like 7.30, 8 o'clock. They, they want their games in the afternoon. That's the tradition out here. They grew up going to afternoon games and then you, and then the game's over and you go on with your night. You know, and some people travel from if you're an Oregon fan, you may travel from a whole other part of the state. You don't want to get back home late at night. So, But there's other a couple of things to that, though. First of all, it's not like you have, whether you're in the SEC or in the ACC, you know, or, or certainly the Big Ten, they're traveling long distances, too, for games. The one, the one distinction I would make when you, refer, you know, talked about James Franklin was they don't play, you know, the Big Ten is not playing as many night games as these guys seem to be playing. So I think that is, that is part of it. Uh, yeah, I think I, I think what 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 blew, what really blew this up because I think Kirk's comments I don't disagree with him. The one thing is the one line in there about you should be thankful. I think almost any time that phrase comes up, yeah. you should be thankful. It's probably it's almost like with well, with all due respect, you know, go bleep yourself. You know, it's one of those kinds of. You know, I mean, to me, they should never have been having that conversation on game day. That's a huge conflict of interest, even having that as a as a topic. I mean, they could have come out and sided with Chris Peterson. I don't care. Uh, it's just they're too big a player in that to have that conversation. And then for uh, Kirk, who is a you know one of the more prominent front facing employees of ESPN, to say you should be thanking ESPN just does not play well. And then the stuff during the game was just weird. You know, they were. They took exception with the fact that Chris Peterson didn't meet with them the day before the game like most home coaches do. Well, you know, newsflash, that, that is Chris Peterson. He's, he doesn't do that for It wasn't uh, specific to this crew or this week. He doesn't ever do that. So I, I, don't know if he doesn't, I, I, don't, I don't know if he doesn't ever do that. I, you know, just in terms of like what is normal protocol, just as my experience of a couple of years of doing this now, typically when the home team – that you, that you know is doing the game usually meet with the, the head coach and the coordinators and maybe a couple of players on Friday in person and it's the visiting team you talk to over the phone their coordinators usually earlier in the week i'm not sure exactly how different chris peterson is i don't know that he never meets with the home you know with the uh, the the crew that's coming in if it's in seattle or if it was in boise i don't i, I don't know if it's a, if it's a never deal 
it's it's not the first time it's happened. I know that. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no right, there's no right answer in this thing. Um, I mean, ESPN's right. They do have more eyeballs on those games than they would if they were um, regionalized in the middle of the afternoon, like the old days. I can, you know, to his point about the Pac-12 network, which was kind of a shot. Just the other night, last night, Khalil Tate from Arizona broke. This, this is a guy who was not even the starter. He comes in on the first series when the starter gets hurt, and he ends up running. This is a quarterback running for 327 yards, the FBS record for a quarterback, and nobody saw that. That wasn't even a late game. That was a regular prime time on the East Coast game, and nobody saw that because it was on Pac-12 Network. So I do think that more people are seeing those 1030 Eastern games than would have in another arrangement. I think the problem they made was, you know, when Larry Scott made that deal six or seven years ago, he was so eager to get the money, and he was so eager for them to create those national windows for him that I don't think they paid too much attention to the details of it. There should have been some kind of spreading the wealth, some number of limit on how many of those games in a row you can play. There certainly should have been. I mean, Stanford this week is playing at 11 p.m. Eastern. There should They probably should have asked for some sort of uh, guaranteed this is how late your game can be. It's just some of that stuff doesn't seem to have been considered, and you do end up in these situations where the same team is stuck playing in that slot many weeks in a row. Yeah, I think it's uh, – look, this, is, this relates to the Heisman race. We have a legit candidate in there from Stanford, Bryce Love. Pretty much nobody is, is watching you know, his games. Nope. Right? So we'll see how much it, uh, how much it carries over to that. Uh, ironic that Chris Peterson is in the midst of this controversy. He's probably the last guy who I think the last head coach would feel like, all right, this is something I want to be in the middle of. And yet here we are. So I read tonight a good story that you guys had on your site from our friend, John Walters, that kind of weighed into this. And, you know, as you were saying this about ESPN, you know, you probably shouldn't get involved in this. I mean, look, we, we weigh in on a lot of stuff back when you were at Fox, I'm still at Fox where it's like, I think sometimes the story is is bigger than you know. There's almost no avoiding it, right? So, I I I kind of get that. I mean, I I could see why you know, but it, obviously, it just sometimes you weigh in, and then sometimes it gets you know overblown and gets too big, and that's where I feel like this one is. All right. Well, there's some important things we need to get to that actually happened on the field, starting with the fact that Iowa State 31 point underdog. Pulls off the upset of the season so far, goes to Norman and knocks off number three, Oklahoma. And this is a rare situation where we are now going to talk about a team and we know that the coach is listening. Yeah, so I'm going to I'm gonna pat myself on the back here because I took it on the chin a couple last week with you throwing some stuff back in my face, Stu. In July, I did a story for SI.com on Joel Lanning making the transition from being their starting quarterback to – Mike Linebacker, Joel Lanning had not played linebacker since he was in the eighth grade. But in talking to him and then talking to Matt Campbell, one of the things that jumped out at me, so much so that I think I called you from Texas at Big 12 Media Days to say, hey, Matt Campbell's a big, big fan of the Audible. It's one of the first things that we discussed and he brought up to me. And, uh, you know, back then, as, as our listeners probably remember, the Audible was in serious jeopardy of, of going away. So, <laughs> so it was cool to hear that. And um, 
So I imagine you didn't believe me until you talked to Coach I don't know Campbell that I didn't believe you. It just didn't really register until I called Matt Campbell on uh, Sunday morning to talk about the game. And the first thing he said was how much he loves the Audible. So thank you, Matt Campbell. Thank you. And uh, congratulations again on this victory. Joel Lanning, to me, is the story. There have been, and I wrote about this on Saturday on the All-American, there have been, you know, you think of some recent two-way players. I think of Miles Jack being a mm-hmm. All-American linebacker who was also their uh, short yardage guy and, in fact, sometimes was their leading rusher, if I recall. Obviously, Jabril Peppers last season. Plenty, well, you can go back to Charles Woodson. You can sure. Chris Gamble. I mean, Chris Gamble, when he was at uh, Ohio State and they were going to play for the national title, I remember I did a feature on him where you studied just how much distance he covered over the course. This is pre-GPS tracking of how much mm-hmm. he had run over the course of a game. And, it was, you know, obviously a cornerback slash receiver and you're involved in special teams, there's going to be a lot of long-distance sprints. But there isn't going to be as much physicality as being a Mike linebacker like Joel Lanning is going to be engaged in. Well, I yeah, I can't – of all those dual-threat guys, I can't think of anybody who was a defensive player primarily – whose other job was quarterback. And and look, they lost their starting quarterback last week. He's on a medical leave. So you've got a fifth-year walk-on, former Oregon State, former JUCO quarterback is the starter, and he's shredding Oklahoma's defense. And then you've got Lanning coming in, change of pace guy, running the ball mostly. And, uh, you know, it was an interesting thing to watch because usually when there's, um, you know, a big underdog pull something like this off, I feel like the script is more they come out, they catch them sleeping, they jump to a big lead, and they hold on for dear life. This was Oklahoma gets up 24-10. Oh, they're going to cruise. And then Iowa State suddenly, whatever happened, I don't know, they scored on five straight drives. They couldn't stop them. And Oklahoma did come back and tie it, and then Iowa State came right back down. And um, Alan Lazard, who I feel like has been in college since 1996 – with the big touchdown catch, he's a stud receiver. Just a huge win for that program. And I feel like, you know, Paul Rhodes teased us a couple times. They had a couple big upsets, most notably that Oklahoma State Friday night game that knocked them out of the national title picture. But they just never really followed up on that. I do feel like early returns are good for this program. I feel like he's got them heading in the right direction. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, look, he did really well at Toledo. Uh, you and I talked about this in the past that it's like, man, I'm surprised Matt took Iowa State. That is yep. such a tough job. I mean, and why I think I say it's such a tough job is, yes, there's not going to you're not in a huge recruiting hotbed. But on top of that, like Iowa has traditionally been these these the in-state school. You only have three non-conference games, so it's tough to get to six. Whereas if you're in an SEC, you can get you know get the extra, get the fourth non-conference game. So you only have three, and one of them is going to be Iowa, and Iowa's typically pretty good, if not very good. So, you know, hats off to him for for believing in it, and you hear nothing but good things about it. He gushed about Lanning's character and toughness, and you know, back then, and I just, you know, you hear it when you talk to all these guys on their staff about him. So I'm glad Joel Lanning is getting the spotlight, you know, on this because I think it's a it's a cool story. I'm happy for Kyle Kempt, you know, who had committed to Butch Jones when Butch Jones was at Cincinnati. That's, I mean, you know, it's been a, it's been a, a up and down. Sean Mannion's backup at Oregon state. Yeah. Was he his backup? Was there, well, I don't think he was the direct backup. Yeah. I think, 
think there was some other other folks in, in play there. Well, that's going to be the plan going forward. Uh, I think they're going to continue to. I mean, Kemp will be the guy, and then he'll continue to get twenty or so snaps on offense for Lanning. And now you were so you were at the TCU game. TCU is now the only undefeated team left in the Big Twelve. What do we make of this race now? Everybody jumped on Oklahoma State, and then they lost to to TCU. Everybody jumped on Oklahoma. They still, to me, that Ohio State win is still a fantastic win. But you know, you remember last time out before this, they had a sort of close call of certainly a shootout you wouldn't have expected against Baylor. Now this, who's going to win this thing? You know, I'm still not backing off Oklahoma. I know their defense, their defense is disappointing. You know, it's, it's disappointing because you have so many seniors on it and you still have these busts and they should be more talented than this, you know? And I, I think Mike Stoops thought they turned a corner and then, you know, he's frustrated with all the, you know, missed assignments they had against Baylor and, you know, Baylor's really struggling. It wasn't like they had a, had an off game against, you know, a pretty formidable team. It wasn't the case. And then to have this happen at home, you know, I feel like right now just about anybody, there's no great team in the conference because all the defenses, the best you get is pretty good. You know, I watched, the, you know, TCU and Gary Patterson's a fantastic defensive coach, but Will Greer moved the ball up and down the field. Now they struggled, you know, finishing off drives. But I think they put up over 500 yards of offense, and there was nothing fluky about it. I think it's going to be tough for anybody to get through to the playoff. But the best thing that they have going is, like you said, that Ohio State, that win, and it happened in Columbus. It looks like Ohio State, you know, now that Michigan has been knocked off, it's we're looking at it going, okay, you know, I don't know if you think believe in Penn State going into Columbus and winning. I mean, that would, would hurt Oklahoma, and that would, you know, by proxy hurt the Big 12. But as you know, if Ohio State can win their division, I think that that's that's a big feather in the Big 12's cap to have that non-conference win. And we'll see. It's a long season. We're not even at the midway point yet. So, uh, very interested to see how the rest of this holds up. But I think the Big 12 is loaded with parity right now. Whether you're looking at Texas, you know, kind of battling around. Whether you're seeing Texas Tech has improved, I feel like, quite a bit. And certainly Iowa State has. So I think when you have that part of it, I think that only makes the league that much stronger. Well, I do think it's a stronger league than it has been. Unfortunately, the the worst part about parity is that's a good way to knock yourself out of the playoff race. I'm not throwing in the towel on Oklahoma State, that's for sure. Oklahoma, you know, like I said, this is two performances in a row that concern me. Uh, gets back to, I think, some concerns I had going into the preseason just about the extent of this coaching change. But if they can rally, if they can rebound it, I mean, I'm not worried about a one-loss Oklahoma team getting left out because that Ohio State win will will come through for them, most likely. It, the problem is, can they really run the table from here? Can Oklahoma State really run the table from here? Because we'd have to have quite a bit of attrition for us to be talking about a two-loss Big 12 champ possibly getting into it. Okay, turning the page. Another coach I talked to on Sunday, Mark Richt from your Miami Hurricanes, Bruce. The U. Is it finally, can we finally say it? Is the U back? They pull off a dramatic win over Florida State. No, we can't say that. And I'm encouraging my Miami brethren, cool down. First of all, (laughs) winning in Tallahassee, good. Florida State has still a lot of talent. Florida State is really struggling now. There's no DeAndre Francois anymore. Let's not get over our skis with this. 
also, you don't get to say Miami is back until they at least win their conference. But Miami's not back until they win a national title. That's as far as I go. I'm not. Yeah. I'm sorry. When Miami was back, that meant Miami was the best program in college football, and there was an air about it. Well, you, you got a few getting in the top in ten. <laughs> get, getting in the top ten. Toledo is a nice program. Florida State still has talent, but there's no. You know, we're not even anywhere near this. Not even close. No. So I mean, that they're not going to win the national championship this year. So my question to you would be, what what, what would make a Miami fan feel? good by the end of the season would it be would it be enough to and i think this is a realistic scenario win the division but lose to clemson in the acc championship game yes and i think if you're competitive in that game yes then i think that is a good step i like what i you know look i like what mark richt has done there they're recruiting very well by all accounts i think there's a lot of positive traction i think he's he's got some of the old miami guys involved you know engaged in in the program which i think has been good you know they don't have enough of the piece they only right now mark walton's out for the rest of the year he's a really good running that was a that was a tough uh yeah they only have three scholarship running backs left Stu. i mean so there are definite concerns. Defensively, I really like what they've done. Manny Diaz has been a terrific hire for him. Offensively, I think there's still some big question marks, certainly on the offensive line and in other you know places. Positive steps, you know. And, and look, they're they're still young, so I think they'll still keep improving. I don't think they're ready for Clemson. There's still a ways to go before they even can get to the ACC title. But if they get to the ACC title game, yeah, I think that's that's something to to. To be excited. About. I mean, this one this week against Georgia Tech, hardly a gimme. It's a game you got to be ready for, and obviously, they've got other guys who are injured. Let me tell you who my favorite player, though, on Miami is Braxton Berrios. That guy is everywhere. Where was, you know, I know he was a special teams, you know, you'd see him on special teams and You'd see him here and there on offense, but where was this guy the last three years? He's been around. I mean, he's a he's a good little receiver. He was a pretty big recruit for them. You know, I remember you know the Duke staff loved him. You know, he's from that 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 part of the country. High academic guy. I suspect he will bounce around the NFL for a little while. You know, he's a return guy. He he does a lot of good things. I mean, Amon Richards is a big play guy. He's a young receiver who's really talented. I think he's the other guy there, but. Um, you know, I think now you're just discovering a pretty good player. And they've had some good skill guys, you know, even when this is lull's been going on. But uh, I don't know. I Again, I would say just don't go too far over your skis. On well, and then so in terms of Florida State, you know, one and three for the first time since Bobby Bowden's first season in 1976. And Florida State fans are freaking out. And they are mad that Jimbo Fisher didn't make coaching changes during going into this season. Now they, they want heads to roll. And I'm just wondering if you are maybe a little less involved, if you're looking at it from a distance. Doesn't that seem a bit much? I mean, once DeAndre Francois went down, yeah, you're you kind of figured this might be a possibility. To play. Yeah. They were, you know, also, as you know, no Dalvin Cook. Now, Cam Akers got rolling the other night, and we think he'll be a star. But, you know, it wasn't like they had go-to receivers there. They had some talented guys, but nobody that proven. But that, you could, if they really don't have receivers, you can blame that on Jimbo Fisher and his staff. I I, I don't think you can blame him is the fact that in two consecutive classes, their star quarterback recruit ended up leaving the program, uh, one of them for 
getting kicked off the team. Like, that really set them back. Okay, okay, Stu. So I'm going to flip this now. So let's say if it was reversed in the opener. Florida State has a really good defensive, you know, defense, a lot of athletes. Let's say Jalen Jalen Hurst got hurt in that game. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe Tua jumps in. But remember, Alabama had three three quarterbacks who were all pretty touted when they got there. Two of them, especially Blake Barnett and David Cornwell, they left. I mean, this I think this is a function of of just what goes on in college football in this day and age. I mean, for people who are like like I'm kind of stunned that people that Florida State fans would be giving Jimbo Fisher a hard time. Uh, it's rare when anybody exceeds a legend and does anywhere near as as well, leading them back to the mountaintop. I mean, he knows what he's doing. He's a he's a terrific offensive coach. You know, you're going to get a hiccup here. You had a key injury to a key guy who was you know they were counting on for leadership and. Um, I don't well, know. this is what happens when, just like you said, Miami won't be back till they win a national title. The bar at Florida State is national titles, and they've only know, won. Yeah, some national titles, but they only won one in this stretch. They've been really good, but like, don't. Well, here, here's the stat that that is being thrown out there that for people who want to jump on him. So, obviously, you had a number one pick and a Heisman Trophy winner there for two seasons in Jameis Winston. And during those two seasons, they went sixteen and zero in the ACC. In the three seasons since he left, they are twelve and seven in the ACC. So from sixteen and zero to twelve and seven, does that concern you? Wait, that's not three seasons. It's two. It's one and a half years. It's two and a half years. It's no, two. It's, it's two and years and then three games into the third. Am I missing something here? Yes, you are. <laughs> you have to add sixteen plus three. From sixteen and zero to twelve and seven. Maybe I'm skipping the year before. Jameis played there twenty thirteen and twenty fourteen. The only loss. Well, what, well you the part that you have confusing. Where, where, what's the sixteen and zero part you're giving? Oh, sixteen and zero in the ACC. In the ACC, this is conference play. ACC sixteen and zero in the ACC. Eighteen and zero if you include the ACC title games. Twelve and seven since. So yes, there has been a drop off. It didn't just start this season. Um, I mean, they're five and three in the ACC last season when they, of course, the problem was the complete opposite. Then it was the defense. Yeah, but here's the problem I have with your drop off. Let's look at where they were ranked last year. They were ranked eighth. It's, you know, it's like, isn't that crazy? They just, they beat a top 10 Michigan team in the orange bowl and finished eighth in the country and they want to fire people. Yeah, that's, you know, I I don't know. College football, everybody. Hey, let's talk about another ostensibly successful coach who is starting to he's not not like this but stat that i uh shared you shared with you that i saw on twitter so michigan state uh knocks off michigan in the pouring rain mark d'antonio grinning from uh like you wouldn't believe this is a guy who you never see smile but he definitely smiles when he does that sideline interview after he beats michigan for the eighth time in 10 years all right where's that stat i sent you this stat is courtesy we should credit it it is on Twitter from Mike Sullivan. Through 31 games at Michigan, Jim Harbaugh's record is 24-7. and seven. He is 1-1 one and one in a bowl and 1-4 and four versus Michigan's arch rivals. His predecessor, Brady Hoke, through his 31 games, exact same record, 24-7, and seven, exact same bowl record, but he was 2-2 two and two versus his rivals. Well, there you go. Definitive proof. 
Jim Harbaugh, Ooh. no better quote coach than Brady Hoke. Is that definitive proof? No, is really no, it is not apples to apples. You got to have some context. You know, Michigan, where, where, was there, where when when Brady Hoke was in his first twenty four games, what was where was uh, Urban Meyer? He'd gotten there, hadn't he? We're gonna find out in a second. Yeah, they had a, they, at least one of those two and two against the rivals was against Urban Meyer. But my point was, he had a great first season. They go to the Sugar Bowl. They win eleven games, and then they clearly got worse every year after that. You know, Harbaugh, his team last season. If the spot is a little bit different against Ohio State, they are going to the playoff. And uh, and frankly, look, there's a little bit of bad luck here for Harbaugh in these rivalry games, right? The drop, the drop punt snap, the spot against Ohio State. I mean, they they could easily be three and one right now in those rivalry games, but they're not. Oh, I'm sorry, it's one and four, so they would be three and two in those rivalry games. But they're just not. To, just and, just to clarify, by yeah. the way, Urban Meyer was not there the first year. That Brady Hoke was, but this is into the third season. So he would have played him in 2012 and lost. Yes, but he he had the first win over uh, Luke Fickle. So the point my is, point being, Ohio State was not quite at the level of talent. But that that's not. I mean, Jim that doesn't Harbaugh's explain game. why they've lost two of three to. They just lost last night to a Michigan State team that's coming off three and nine. And lost by twenty to Notre Dame earlier this season. That's where this one stings, you know. When D'Antonio had it rolling, as he did for many years, they didn't like losing to Michigan State, but maybe you could understand it a little bit better. That they should not be losing at home to that team. Now it was in a torrential downpour. They turned it over five times. It was a weird game, but this was the first one of those one and four versus the rivals, where you're like, yeah, they shouldn't have lost that game. Yeah, I mean that's definitely uh, it's definitely an interesting stat, but it's I, not trending. Brady, I mean Brady Hoke's pro team got worse and worse. You had you know Devin Gardner could never figure out what the heck was going on with him. I will say this quarterback situation this year is not great, and I really think you know offensive line is a problem too. But Jim Harbaugh was an NFL quarterback. You would think in year three he'd have a better option than John O'Corn. It's, well, it's not for lack of recruiting quarterbacks. They've recruited a bunch. I think that, you know, you look back, they got Jake Rudock playing pretty well at Michigan. Yep. Now, that was Jed Fish, who was working with the quarterbacks. He's now at UCLA. It's not to say Jim Harbaugh and Pep Hamilton can't get that sorted out. But, yeah, definitely been some pretty suspect QB play there, which has been a little surprising. Defense is still unbelievable with Don under Don Brown. You know, they, they lost so many guys from last season, and they're still out there dominating. Offense can't get it going. They play. You're, you're at Penn State as we speak. They play at Penn State in a couple weeks. Not liking their chances. Yeah. By the way, Penn State's defense. Uh, Brent Pry's got them playing really well. I know the competition hasn't been great, but um, you know, it's, I, I looked up a stat. They are the only ones in the Big Ten by far who have held their opponents to zero points on their first drive of both. The first half and the second half, which is a pretty pretty strong state statement to make. If These not for a uh, right Northwestern out. touchdown against the second string defense in the last two minutes of the game, they'd have three shutouts on their resume right now. So, you know, it's not just McSorley and Barkley. And in fact, Barkley got largely contained the other day. But that was, you know, people see the final stat line and say, oh, he he's overrated or something like that. I don't know. I, it was Northwestern intentionally. 
decided they were going to sell completely out on him, not let him run the ball on them, but let Trace McSorley just do whatever the heck he wanted. So to put that all on Barkley, and he still broke off a really long run there towards yeah, the end of the game. I, uh, got a bone to pick with you, Stu. Uh-oh. So I wasn't aware of this until, or, until a little bit ago. I think you subtweeted some crap my way without me knowing it during my game. Uh, and then you, and then you, it's not even subtweeted. You just kind of zinged my colleague. At, I right honestly have no idea what you're talking about right now. So let's, let's get it out. Who did I subtweet? Then. Go ahead. David Sills quote offered by USC as quarterback when he was 13 has become the new Colt McCoy and Jordan Shipley. Oh, roommates. Oh, 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 no, 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 no. Sorry. That wasn't from your broadcast. Actually, that was from, Sorry that you thought that. That was from a uh, like a one of those ESPN studio updates. The reason why I look at this is because then the way you were discussing, if somebody tweeted at you about AJ Hawk is dating Brady Quinn's sister to update, they're married with four kids now. But uh, ironically, Brady Quinn is calling David Sills game right now. All right, I have to cape for Brady. What do, what are you doing to him there? What's that still? No, you got lost in a vortex of assumptions there. I just happened to see uh, one of these quick studio updates of David Sills catching a touchdown pass. And even in those 10 seconds, the guy had to mention that he was a quarterback recruited in, when he was 13 by Lane Kiffin. And so I said, this is becoming the new, hey, did you know Colt McCoy and Jordan Shipley are roommates? It, it, and then somebody, and then you got like responding to that, all these people bringing out these other overused uh, oh, I got it. Dur- throughout college, recent college football. Uh, who are some other examples? Brock Osweiler, 6'7", was a big thing when he was at ASU. Uh, gosh, I'd have to look at the tweet. But, yeah, one of the ones they brought up was how many times did we have to know about A.J. Hawk and Brady Quinn? And then I thought, oh, that's funny that he brought that up because Brady Quinn is calling David Sills' game right now. So just for the record. Okay, so you've explained yourself. Yeah. You've explained yourself. Thank you. Okay. Any other bones to pick? You know, this isn't a bone to pick with you, but it's more I want to pick your brain on this. This, And I asked you this uh, when we were catching up last night. So Arkansas is 2-3. and three. They're 0-2 in the SEC. They just got drilled by South Carolina. Brett Bielema, who's been a good guest on our show before and somebody I think we genuinely both really like and respect, he's in year five. He's 27 and 29. He is 10 and 24 in, in SEC play and at a 7 and 18 in, in the SEC West. As I'm just looking at an SB Nation story that kind of went into detail about this. Butch Jones has been there, been at his school the same amount of time. He's actually got a better record. Now, the SEC East is much easier than the SEC West. Let's get Oh, that I see open. where this is headed. You're stumping no, for your guy, Butch Jones. No, no, no. Uh, no, I'm, I'm asking, look, and I think I know the answer to this because I think Jeff Long has, is a much stronger AD than what has been in, you know, at Tennessee. If you are an Arkansas fan though, how frustrated are you right now that not only they're losing, but they're just, they got, they got drilled by, it wasn't like they got drilled by Alabama. They're, uh, they're terrible. I mean, they, they went on the road and got destroyed by a pretty mediocre South Carolina team. The stat that you said this just, and I had this in my column that's going out Monday, 10 and 24 in the SEC. I looked it up, and both your guy, Houston Nutt, and Bobby Petrino, same school, both were at least above 500 in the SEC. This is nowhere near 500 in the SEC. Now, I think when he got there, 
people were patient. They knew, you know, what a mess he walked into. Petrino yeah. getting fired. The John, L, the the John, John L. Smith. Year. I mean, that's a lost recruiting class right there. So he goes 0-8 in the first year. That's not good. But people are willing to be a little patient. And the next year they go uh, 2-6 and six in the conference, 7-6 and six overall. They beat Texas in a bowl game. The next year they're even better. They're 5-3 and three in the SEC, 8-5 and five overall. That's the year where they beat Ole Miss on that crazy lateral. Um, last year they take a step back, 7-6, and 3-5. and five. We actually talked to Bielam about that at the uh, Phoenix in the spring. You know, they blew the Belk Bowl. But his point was, you know, yeah, things are still heading in the right direction. We just had a couple blue – they blew the Missouri game too. You know, a couple um, – you know, they blew the game at the end a couple times. They ended up with a worse record. But now you're still trending in the wrong direction. And so where you're frustrated is – you're bringing up the comparison to Butch Jones. Expectations are always going to be higher at Tennessee than they are at Arkansas. It's just better tradition, more resources, bigger stadium. But, uh, but, but, Butch Jones took over a garbage dump with following Derek Dooley. I remember going down there. Their skill talent was god-awful when he got there. So it's not like he walked in and this was a program that was rolling either. Oh, no, they've gotten a lot better. They're just not, after five years, they're not anywhere near where, I mean, Tennessee is kind of closer to that Florida State-Miami bar of expectations, certainly than Arkansas is. But what I'm trying to get to is the problem for Arkansas, and you mentioned Jeff Long, highly respected AD, but he has married himself to Bielema. He put, a, and this is a thing that's becoming an increasingly um, talked about subject, why do these schools put these enormous buyouts in for coaches who aren't any threat to leave. As far as I know, nobody's been coming after Bielema since he got to Arkansas. And yet, if they tried to fire him today, that buyout is $15 million. If they wait till after January 1st of this year, it's still almost $12 million. So he is in, unless Jerry Jones is going to fork a check over for $12 million, he's, they could go 3-9 this year, and I think he's still fine. He's still safe because of that buyout. There's nothing they can do about it. Whereas Tennessee would seem to be in a position to move on Butch Jones. Yeah, and his his Butch's bio is probably like less than a third of what, or about about a third of what what Bielema's is. This came up with Ogeron too, and I, not that I think he should be fired, and he obviously had a big win this past weekend. But people were stunned to find out that Joe Oliva gave him uh, double digits. Uh, yeah, you know. but right now the buy the buyout right now is under ten million. It's like nine million. On Ogeron, but here's the thing that. But uh, why do they have to give them these buyouts? The Ogeron when they have no one to me is the Ogeron one to me is different. Bielema, I think, you know, he had won pretty big. They hired him away from Wisconsin. I think he would be an interesting fit. Like let's say at Nebraska or certainly other places. The part with Ogeron is that is his dream job. He's not leaving there if he's winning for any other job. Right. So that part. But what I would say to the other, the flip side is. You do need to have a buyout because it protects recruiting because you're going to get all people going, well, they're going to fire him now. Well, what's the way to, to, to defend against that? Realistically, no one's getting fired after one year unless there's some kind of massive scandal at play. They're not even firing him next year. But you know? Bielema's been there. I get it with Ogeron, what you're saying, but Bielema's been there for five years. And, you know, you're just, you're bit, you know, it, it, let's say the bottom completely falls out this year, and they're three and nine, and you're stuck. You can't, you can't change your program. You can't fix your program. The same thing, frankly. I think Kevin Sumlin would be gone at AM by now, if not for 
his prohibitive buyout. They they're looking a little bit better. They gave Arkansas, I mean uh, Alabama, the toughest game they've had this season. But the it's... tricky part, the tricky part with Sumlin is going to be they have a chance. Where you see now, Kellen Mond is playing is improving a lot. They have a lot of young players who are who are developing as the season goes on. If they get to nine wins, here's the part that I think is going to be hard is. From all I've heard, the AD at, at, at Texas A&M, Scott Woodward, even if someone goes wins, finishes 10-3, and three, they're not going to give him more years in his contract. So well, that would they basically ugly. just – so it's, I think it's already ugly. You know, the question is then how does that get sorted out going forward? I mean, uh, it I could just, happen too. Uh, Kellen Mond seems to be progressing rather rapidly. Uh, obviously, this is a three-team conference right now, and they've already played one of those teams, and I don't believe they played Georgia. So, you know, your nine and three scenario is certainly a possibility. Yeah, look, there, there's to me, there's one other aside from Alabama, really solid team, and that's Auburn. You look, the Mississippi schools are not very impressive right now, and Arkansas has been dreadful. LSU is banged up. And they started. They they played four freshmen on the O line the other day. Even if things go well, I'd be surprised if they get to eight wins. You know, Danny Etling's still the quarterback. So yeah, I was at the game last year where Danny Etling lit that defense up in College Station. But I still think, you know, A and M, you know, realistically has a, ch- a decent shot to get to nine wins. For our last topic of the day, let's give our listeners in LA something to think about here. Sam Darnold. You know, the backlash into that Washington State game. And frankly, I got to say, I, I saw this coming from the day that you came on the show in February after you'd been to the combine and said that people are already talking him up as the number one pick for next year. You know what happens. As soon as they get built up, here comes the backlash. But it's been particularly notable since that Washington State game. Yeah. So um, I noticed something when I was just catching up on reading John Canzano columnist and radio host in Oregon had a note. Uh, I had missed this initially. Oregon State defensive back Kyle White caused a stir in the postgame news conference when he told reporters that Sam Darnold was just okay, said White, quote, nothing special. He's a normal Pac-12 quarterback. He makes his throws. He makes his reads, end quote. And then John, uh, like I said, a columnist, uh, writes, I agree with White. Darnold is just so-so. Good enough to win games for a team that has some great players around him, but I don't love his game, end quote. Uh, I don't think Sam Darnold, actually, except for Ronald Jones, has great players around him. The pylon continues line. in a uh, recent— Wait, wait, wait. Let me, let me just say my point, and then we'll— Sorry. I, don't, sorry. I, dis, I disagree with John. I don't think Sam Darnold has great players around him. He has one re- excellent player in Ronald Jones, and he has a patchwork offensive line— and very inexperienced receivers, and their defense is certainly not what we what USC's defense used to be. So I think Sam Darnold is great at extending plays, but I think you're now seeing him through the microscope that, uh, like you said, the bar is so high now, and it's getting, it's getting a little messy. Your colleague Albert Breer at the MMQB talked to several NFL personnel evaluators after that Washington State game said, one, he has a slight hitch and wind up in his throw, and he does stare down receivers. He's still learning to read defenses. This is a young kid, not ready for prime time yet. He has the tools, but he's too inconsistent, and the hype doesn't help him either. Overall, he has a lot of ability, 
but he's not there yet. By the way, the column begins with Albert saying, I have some advice for any, everyone following a bad team, and as a result, all the top college quarterbacks, and it really boils down to two words. Chill out. USC Sam Darnold looked like crap on Friday night at Washington State. That that line just kind of like made me raise my eyebrows for a second. Wow. Talking about a college quarterback here and saying he looked like crap. Well, I think now, I think you're getting a lot of people go, looking through a prism of the NFL and this kind of draft ramp up. And, you know, it, it can get a little, as I said before, messy. And I think some things that maybe get whispered on now all of a sudden become fodder. And, and that's unfortunate that comes with it. I, I do think... You know, you and I, we try to tread lightly because it's the, the end of the day. They're still college kids. They're not NFL players. I think we, you got to be more measured in, in yeah. the critiques and the criticism of them. You will rarely see me rip a college player unless it's for something off the field, not for having a bad game on the field. It's tricky with quarterbacks. It's hard to avoid that sometimes if you've got a quarterback who's Throwing interceptions left and right. and costing Sometimes you don't know if the interception is on them, though. Receiver right. runs the wrong route. There's miscommunication. All in all, this Darnold thing is just a classic example of, you know, he, he saves the team last year, wins the Rose Bowl, but he's only started 10 games. But now you got a whole offseason to hype him up, and it's coming. It seems to be coming more from the NFL than from college, frankly, although obviously preseason Heisman favorites. You know, and now the same NFL people that built him up are, are are tearing him back down. I mean, it got to the point where you're seeing people at his games, fans in Jets jerseys, Sam Darnold Jets jerseys, as in the Jets' number one pick next year. Uh, everybody slowed down, as he said. But yeah, I, I, you know, they got a tough game against Utah this week. Then they go to Notre Dame. I mean, if you had to guess, is Darnold going to snap out of this in the next two weeks, or is it going to get worse? I don't think it's going to get worse. I think he will continue to play play better as he gets more more kind of experience with his receivers because, like I said, they're young. Uh, but he's young. I mean, he hasn't even played a full season. That's why I thought some of this hype was was out of control. It's not like he has a – I want to be remind people, I did not pick USC to win the Pac-12. You know, it wasn't like their offensive line was great to begin with, and now, you know, you've got their most experienced offensive lineman – is out for the rest of the year. His college career is done. They've had issues with both tackles. So, I mean, that, especially for a guy who's like trying to do too much. I, I remembered a couple of weeks ago, Josh Rosen had a comment about playing hero ball. And, you know, it worked out for him. He got away with a couple of throws against Texas A&M. But I think one of the challenges, especially with these guys who are so talented, is they often, they're young and they try to do too much. I mean, that's Rosen gets himself in mistake in, into delicate areas because he tries to squeeze throws in like, you know, like Brett Favre would. And I think Sam, with extended plays last year, it led to some fumbles. I think we're seeing some of that too. And I think with a young quarterback, you just got to roll with it. I mean, if I'm a USC fan, I'm still thankful I got Sam Darnold there. But, you know, like you said, it's just this is the part of the process which gets a little unseemly where it's like, you know, we, everybody build them up, and then it becomes a thing to pull it apart a little bit. Actually reminds me of somebody, a similar situation that I'm looking up right now. So Jameis Winston, we talked about him earlier, 2013 as a redshirt freshman, Heisman winner. He throws for 4,057 yards, 40 TDs, 10 INTs, 10.6 yards per attempt. Now, that team had Rashad Green, Kelvin Benjamin, Help me out. Who's the third receiver? 
two great running backs. I mean, this was the team that just dominated everybody they played up until the Auburn game. It was a great team, great supporting cast. Nick O'Leary? Nick O'Leary was on that team. So he loses a bunch of those guys. They come back the next year with basically a new receiving core, an offensive line that's not as good. And as a, at this point, third-year sophomore, Winston throws 25 touchdowns, 18 interceptions, and his yards per attempt goes down to 8.4. And it was exactly what you're talking about. He was trying to win every game by himself. He was forcing it. Everybody remembers the meltdown uh, during the, the Oregon game. Um, of course, he's still at number one. So I don't – but the difference is Darnold, Darnold, what he did last season was not anything near what Winston did when he won the Heisman. So the hype was already, I think, disproportionate to what he had accomplished on the field. Yeah, and I believe that team you're talking about had – all uh, I want to say, f- all five returning starters on the offensive line plus O'Leary. So that's that was a lot of that was a lot of experience to be around around Jameis. Anything else? Yes. How are you forgetting our shoutouts? I have a good one. Oh, I should go I first because you're not ready for it. We do it on a different day of the week, and I and I forget about our favorite segment. Rack your brains, Stu. Here's what I got. Shout out to Bill Clark and UAB for a really sweet gesture wearing children's harbor hospital uh so some of the pediatric cancer patients where their names were on the back of their jerseys at uab for their homecoming game which they ended up winning in thrilling fashion beating louisiana tech it's a i think it's an awesome gesture and i just like it when uh coaches and certainly programs are using their platforms to do great things like this. And, you know, obviously the, the story at Iowa with Kirk Ferentz and what that program's done with the hospital there is one of the great stories going in college sports. And I think this is another really sweet thing. Well, you uh, threw me for a loop there because I don't have anything nearly that meaningful to throw out there for the shout-out. I really was just looking at who was doing well in football. How about a shout-out for Brando? It's his 39th wedding anniversary. How there you go. go. Shout-out to Tim Brando. Shout-out uh, to Tim Brando. Shout-out to his wife for putting up with him for 39 <laughs> years. <laughs> shout-out to Tim. Good point. Bruce, do you know who is sitting in first place at 2-0 in Conference USA? I am going to guess it is Mr. Kiffin. Lane Kiffin's FAU yeah. Owls beat Old Dominion 58-28 to the other day. A week after beating Middle Tennessee, 38-20. to 20. They did lose three of their four non-conference games, but they're getting it going. Are you a believer in the Owls? To what degree? Can they get to a bowl game? Yes. I mean, look, Lane beat two good coaches. Rick Stockstill Rick Stock has been there forever, it seems like, and does a good job. And Bobby Wilder, I think, is a really good coach at ODU. So, you know, it's like there are a lot of moving parts going on there. And, uh I don't know. Uh, <sighs> They're on a bye if, this week. Then they play North Texas. And then October 28th at Western Kentucky, another first-year coach, Mike Sanford, who that one is the op- – like, what is going on there? They've been one of the, most, the best offenses in the country the last three years of Jeff Brom. They scored 15 points the other night. Things aren't going as well for Western Kentucky as they have in the past few years. So opportunity there for Lane to get a big signature win. Uh, if they go to the bowl game, will you send somebody from the All-American to 
to uh, cover that bowl game? Um, if it's anywhere but the Bahamas, yes, we probably will. Okay. By the way, are you still doing those bowl projections? I should ask that. Yeah. I'm going to do a mid-season edition, not this week, but next week. And then I'll bring them back regularly once the uh, playoff rankings start coming out. Okay, so that's something so for that's our worth your subscription alone, right there. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I'm giving a shout out to former Louisville All-American kicker and Groza winner Art Carmody. Uh, I ran into him at the Purdue Michigan game a few weeks ago. He is a loyal listener to the Audible, which I thought was very cool when he told us that. So that is that is really cool. He actually showed up in a old box score that I was looking up just today for the Khalil Tate note. I was looking up Pat White's debut at West Virginia, and uh, guess who the kicker on the other team was? Uh, well, for West Virginia? No, West Virginia. Pat White made his West Virginia debut. He came in for an injured, you know, the injured quarterback down seventeen against Louisville in two thousand five. R- Rashid Marshall. Who's Rashid Marshall? The West Virginia quarterback who you're saying got injured? No, not no, no, no. Okay, now I remember who that is, but no, it was. Uh, oh, come on! Don't put me on the spot like this. Anyway, Art Carmody was the kicker for Louisville. The quarterback who got hurt for West Stephane Virginia. Stephon Lafors or Brian or Brian Brom. Those were. I don't, those were. What, what, I don't, you're losing me here. You're saying that some Pat who, White came into the game. Okay. Down seventeen, nothing. To Louisville because because Adam Bednarik got hurt. Oh man, there's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Yeah, she were close though with Rashid Marshall and KJ Harris leaving from the year before. You ended up with Adam Bednarik and redshirt freshman Pat White competing for the spot, and that ended up being Pat White and Steve Slayton, and the rest was history. I don't know. We'll see if Khalil Tate turns into the next Pat White or Denard Robinson. All right, time for the closing credits. If you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. If you enjoy college football podcasts, also subscribe to The All-American Podcast with Nicole Auerbach, Max Olson, and Chantel Jennings. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our intro song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. Download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow Bruce on Twitter at Bruce Feldman CFB. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel. And subscribe to The All-American if you haven't done so already at theathletic.com slash all-american. Come on, get over here. Ah, yeah. whoa, whoa. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hey 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.